there are those that make an impression, are celebrated and enshrined by their game. Then there are those that make an impression, are celebrated and not enshrined, as their memory and glory fade and slip into the ether. Welcome to The Forgotten Ones, Black Betsy, The Shoeless Joe Jackson Story. Born on July 16th, 1888, Joseph Jefferson Jackson in South Carolina to a sharecropper. Joe was thrust into the real world very quickly. He started working at the mills at the age of seven. Joe started his career in baseball at the age of 13, where he was paid $2.50 to play on Saturdays with the Brandon Mills team. Joe loved baseball and finally broke out professionally in 1908 with the Greenville Spinners, hitting 346 in his first year. This caught the eye of Philly manager Connie Mack, who then bought out his contract. He couldn't adjust to life in the big city in Philly, and he was stuck in the minors for two years, only appearing in 10 major league games. In 1910, Mack decided to trade him to the Cleveland Naps. Joe spent time with his Naps in their farm system with the Pelicans in New Orleans and won a batting title, leading the team to a pennant, and was called up in 20 games and hit 387. Joe's rookie season was official in 1911. He posted a four-way batting average, second only to Ty Cobb. In 1912, he led the American League in almost every pure hitting category, hitting 395 with a 551 slugging. In 1917, with the White Sox, he won the World Series, hitting 304 with a 333 on base. In 1918, he worked at a shipyard to assist with World War I preparations. Back in the game in 1919, he hit 351, and in the World Series, he hit 394 with five runs, three doubles, a home run, six RBIs, and a perfect fielding percentage. Now, this doesn't sound like the stat line of someone who was throwing this series for money, does it? Now, some personal information about Joe. He couldn't read or write, and there were only a few accounted instances where he actually signed his name. It was usually just an X. Joe would normally have his wife, Katie, sign the most important documents. There are two things in life that Joe loved. One, his wife, Katie, and two, the game of baseball. The 1919 series of events were turned into several movies and books, most notably the one written in 1963 by Elliot Asinot, Eight Man Out. Now, at this time, 1918 to 1920, there was a lot of conspiracy going around with respect to baseball and things getting fixed. In fact, in 1918, it was reported that players on the Cubs team were taking $10,000 to flub the 1918 World Series. Now, leading up to the 1919 World Series, it was rampant that there was a fix. And it was, it was all led up to Hugh Fullerton of the Chicago Tribune asking Christy Matheson, Hall of Fame pitcher and a part of the first five, to compare notes on plays that they felt may have been offside. Now, Fullerton's suspicious plays were that of someone who had never played the game, as a lot of his accounts weren't shared by Christie at all. But as a reporter, he did run with them. Now, Fullerton's big smoking gun was a play in the fourth inning of Game 4, where there was a hit to left field and Joe came up throwing home just to nab a slower runner to save that score. Now, if you know baseball, it's up to the pitcher who is the cutoff man at this point to see 
if he can try and get that guy stretching that single to a double or let the, the throw stay on course. Well, Chicote flubbed the cutoff, allowing the single to stretch to a double and the run to score. Now, Chicote may have flubbed the ball purposely by cutting him off, but him cutting it off, if he had a shot at the runner going to second, that would have been the right play. Now, here's a real story, and this is something that's been told to me by a lot of old-timers. At this point in 1919, there were four storylines that were all side-by-side that were going to come crashing to an end very quickly. Now, the first of the storylines. Enter the notorious, degenerate gambling Arnold Rothstein. He was presented an offer from a couple of bookies in Chicago who knew a few of the White Sox players. The offer was simple. Foot the bill for a group of Sox to throw the series for a whopping $80,000. Now, this player's consortium was led by all-around nice guy, Ed Chicote and Lefty Williams. Now, Lefty was very close with Shoeless Joe. Now, Rothstein was a gambling man, betting on everything that he could as long as he had an edge. And paying for the series, that was his edge. Rothstein was concerned about there not being enough names on the fix and needed more. This was in part to Chicote and Williams not being enough of talent to turn that tide. Now, with Williams being close with Joe, he told Ed that he'll make sure Joe's in. So Ed told his group to tell Rothstein that Joe was in. That's all that, that, that Rothstein needed, and the deal was sealed. It was reported that Rothstein won in the area of $350,000 on that game. I got a feeling that it was a, a bit more than that. Okay, a lot more than that. Now, once the series was completed, Chicote and Williams got their money. Here's the second storyline. Once Chicote and Williams divvied up the money, $5,000 was put in a laundry sack for Joe. Now, Williams had attempted to give that sack to Joe, it is said, seven times. And each and every time, Joe refused, telling Williams that he didn't take part in what was going on, and he wanted no part of it, and did not want the money. Now, in desperation to close the loop, Williams had no choice but to show up to Shoeless's hotel room and drop the sack on his floor and leave. Now, Joe was forced into a situation of having to do something with the money. So his only thought was to go to Charles Comiskey and give him the money and tell him what happened, even though prior to the series, Joe had already told Comiskey what was going on. But Comiskey never believed Joe. He had absolutely no respect for him. Storyline number three. The old Roman, as he was known, the cheapest of the cheap. The stories of his frugalness were legendary. Especially what Charles Comiskey had done to this team during the 1919 series run. Now, he did promise them a bonus if they had won the pennant, which they did. That bonus turned out to be a case of flat champagne. During this year, Comiskey took away a lot of privileges from the team as well, including even laundry services. Having this team show up on the road and at home in dirty uniforms gave them that nickname, the Black Sox. Now, prior to the series, Joe had requested to be benched because he did not want to take part in what was going on. Comiskey refused his request and sent him packing. As it was said, Comiskey had very little respect for Joe. Now, Joe continued to try to give them money, but Secretary Grabner had told him, keep the money, just forget about it. Now, an assertion was made later by Comiskey's family, as they all were well aware of his feelings about this, and it was stated on record, Jackson neither conspired to throw nor attempted to throw any or all games in the 1919 World Series. 
Now, closing off that storyline on number three, you know, Joe did not want the money that was given to him. So what him and his wife, Katie, did is they took that $5,000, they put it into a savings account, and it accrued interest until Katie passed away. And the money was then divvied up and split and given to the American Heart Fund and the American Cancer Society. The fourth storyline, the one that brings us to the crashing end. Now, the real crook in this whole thing was a lawyer. A lawyer that worked for Charles Comiskey and the White Sox, who went by the name Alfred Austrian. Now, after all the meetings that Joe had with Comiskey, Comiskey decided to have Austrian step in. Now, because he was a personal lawyer for Comiskey and and the team lawyer for the team, he wasn't in a general position of trust. And he definitely took advantage of Joe's simple ways. Austrian pulled out the moonshine, got real friendly with Joe, talked to him about what happened, and asked Joe to sign a document. Now, Joe, feeling he was in a safe place, scribbled his signature on the document. Joe wanted this done because all he wanted to do was play the game he loved, and Austrian used it as leverage to get him to say what he needed him to say, which was to confess that he took part in this. Now, moving forward to this trial, the trial of the early century, the prosecution already had a smoking gun in Sleepy Bill Burns, who had already spilled his beans about what Chakoti was planning and everything that was discussed on the train rides to and from games. Now, Austrian had signed the confessions of Chakoti, Jackson, and Lefty Williams, and he was left to handle those. Now, what was being given in return to those three was a promise of exchanged immunity. But those documents were, of course, lost. And instead of waiting to find them, the prosecution had the report, reporters that were there, the court reporters, create new ones. And that's what they went off of. Now, the defense, the defense here did not object to any of that. Now, Team Secretary Grabner even contested that the fix had hurt Comiskey as well as the team's ability to make money, even though Grabner was the one that told Joe to keep the money after Joe tried to give it back. Now, Justice Friend, who was presiding on this case, was, was a young justice. In fact, this was the biggest case of his career, the most significant he'd won in SAT at this point. And what he did was late in the trial, he dismissed the charges against five of the accusers for lack of evidence. After the jury deliberated and came back, they decided to render not guilty versions on each of the people involved in this. So the eight, the famous eight. But the justice that Justice Friend delivered was not the same justice that his honorable Kennesaw Mountain Landis would deliver. Landis wanted to ban the aid for life. He wanted to send a message and didn't want anything getting in the way of that. Now, let's look at the situation in the 1920s. Kennesaw Landis, for all intents and purposes, was a judge, a legal mind, and was revered in his time. But in the 1920s, gambling and booze were hot-button issues. Many ballplayers were at speakeasies drinking and, yes, most likely gambling. And Landis saw this as a problem in a game that he was now in charge of. It was his test, his mission, to clean up the game. So this 1919 scandal was something very close that he kept in his vest pocket and was always on his mind about how he could exploit this. Now, is baseball wrong for trying to protect its game? No. The integrity of the game back then is something that needed to be upheld at all times. But the justice system is something that needs to be handled in the same revere. 
Now, the justice system is something that should be handled in the same manner, so you have to look at the issues here. One, the manner in which and promises that were given to Chicote, Jackson, and Lefty. Things like that that have to do with constitutional rights of players, regardless of what their accusations are, need to be upheld. They were not. Also, when you look at the whole chain of command here, Joe confessed to a team lawyer, a team lawyer who was on the payroll of the team and ergo an employee of Major League Baseball. Is there a conflict of interest in receiving inadequate representation a drunken confession, and a clear violation of constitutional rights. Now, of course, Joe was acquitted on his charges, but the information that Landis had led to him being banned for life, which meant no baseball, no Hall of Fame, no, no nothing to do with baseball. In 1999, U.S. House of Representatives petitioned to Bud Selig to overturn Joe Jackson's banishment. Selig did not respond, and nothing was done afterwards. In 2015, Rob Menford said that he would not over the, overturn the decision, as Landis had the merit to do so. Now, the issue in his banishment is not that he's been banished. The issue is that he took $5,000 from Lefty Williams, who, with Ed Chicote had set up the fix. Now, it's clear to see by his stats and his play during the series that Shoeless Joe Jackson did not partake in fixing the series. Was his mistake taking that $5,000? It could be. But I also think a big issue here is on how the information was handled and what Landis had. But if you look at the events that took place that were not under Joe's control, i.e., Landis, Austrian, Comiskey, the gambling group, Arnold Rothstein. Inside that is where the truth lies. And until that's looked at properly by Rob Manfred, Shoeless Joe Jackson will remain on the outside of the Hall of Fame looking in. Now, an argument can remain that a current eye cannot be used to offer validation on something that didn't happen during this time i.e. the rules of the time were as such and it has to be accepted. But unfortunately, that is not a stance that I take. Rule of law was broken, and there had never been something that's used to swing the situation. The rule of law is just that. If you take a look at the Confl Conflict of Interest Act of 1919, I'm sure there is a section in there that does, does not state that it's okay for a team representative to get a player drunk to elicit a confession, to then use that confession to ban him from the game. Was there fair, adequate, and impartial representation on Joe's behalf? Outside of the lawyers he had for the trial, I would say no. I think if the actual situation was looked at in the legal context, there would be an argument that Shoeless Joe Jackson's fundamental rights protected by the Constitution were grossly infringed upon. Now, one thing remains constant. There are people that want to see him in the Hall of Fame, and his mark on the game has not faded over the past hundred years. And Joe collected many trophies and accolades during his career, however short, 
he impacted the game in a great way. There are some stories out there that Joe continued playing baseball under pseudonyms, but playing in the Coastal Carolina Leagues was a far way away from where he should have been. But this is how much Joe loved this game. But time is something that no one can get more of. Joe passed in December of 1951, never getting to see his name reinstated or his plaque hung next to his friends within the game that he gave so much to. Joe does have a plaque that does hang this very day in a museum where he is enshrined, titled the Shoeless Joe Museum. The story of the 1919 Black Sox and the throwing of the World Series is immortalized. It is now time to immortalize Shoeless Joe Jackson, not for that, but for who he was as a player. But with time, and as the game and generations change, not being in the Hall of Fame has the potential for his impact on the game to fade, ultimately leading to him being a forgotten one. Thanks for listening from Apple, Spotify, or the podcast platform of your choice. We look forward to you joining us next week for the next episode of The Forgotten Ones. Stay safe, support local, and see you real soon.